Welcome to When Pigs Fly. We're a podcast that's uncovering Cincinnati's rich business history dating back from the 1800s to today. We talk to businesses to uncover the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, what it takes to grow a successful business, and to simply prost to future innovation. I'm one of your co-hosts, Allie Martin. And I'm your other co-host, Patrick Bailey. And today we are talking with Jake Whitman of Really Good Box Wine. So I met Jake at 1215 of Wine and Coffee Bar, which if you do not remember, that was one of our earlier guests uh, on. And he was like, yeah, I'm starting a, a wine company here in Cincinnati. I was like, what? In Cincinnati? He's like, yeah, it's perfect because Cincinnati is known for being really great at e-commerce. So I'm really excited to see where they go. They just launched this week, actually. And I, know, I personally have a- ordered a box of wine. And I actually have my introductory sommelier certificate. So like the level one. So Ooh, as a wine. I did a wa- not know that about you. Ooh, yes. A little <laughs> fancy over here. As a wino, I'm excited to try something different because I've always had this notion that box wine is just meh. So I'm excited to see how they're going to try to change that thought process. Yeah. And I, I don't, Patrick, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Cincinnati actually has some wine history. What? Thanks. No. Yeah. Most people probably don't realize. Nic- thanks to Nicholas Longworth. A lot of people will probably recognize the name Longworth because of Longworth Hall downtown. But Nicholas hmm. Longworth, he was a lawyer. He was a banker. But more importantly, he was recognized as a leading horticulture expert. So working with plants, okay. working in, in the garden. But where the stuff from farming, yeah, farming, right? But he had a passion for grapes specifically. And he especially really liked the vineyard of Catawba grapes along the Ohio River. So he started his vineyards in 1813. And by 1820, he became more serious about producing wine that it would become a commercial success for him. And he made millions and millions of dollars off of it. And that Catawba grape, he was turning it into a mm. sparkling wine. And the influx of German immigrants really, really liked it because it was a bit of taste of home for them. And so wow. he, he turned it in this into this booming business. And at one point in time, he was so successful that he was called the father of the American grape culture. What? Is that like, crazy? I didn't even know Cincinnati yeah, had any go. wine history. You don't, there think, you, go. <laughs> you don't think wine in Cincinnati. No, so, you don't. You don't. And because so. he planted his vineyard of the Catawba on the Mount Adams hillside. Oh, so that's really? how he started. Yep. And that's how he started to make the sparkling wine. Wow, learn something Fun new today. The so, uh, <laughs> on that note, it, let's bring in Jake, who's hopefully making Cincinnati back on the map for wine. Let's do it. Well, Jake, thank you for joining us. Would you like to give our listeners a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. So I'm the founder of a new box wine company called Really Good Box Wine. And uh, Really Good Box Wine is exactly what it sounds like. It's high-end premium box wine. You know, we partner with world-class vineyards and award-winning winemakers to make really beautiful wine, but we put it in the box wine format and we sell it direct to consumer, which we may get into some of the the pros and cons of that of that kind of format versus versus other uh, alcohol sales. So, you know, you order it, ships right to your door, um, order it from the website, ships right to your door. 
I'm from Cincinnati originally, born and raised in Clifton, went to Walnut Hills High School. So kind of Cincinnati, Cincinnati (laughs) through and through. I spent early part of my career, I did Teach for America. I started a nonprofit and ran that for a couple of years and then wrote a book, started a publishing company. And so I was kind of in this social entrepreneurship world for the very early part of my career. And then I did a little bit of a pivot. I moved back to Cincinnati to join Procter & Gamble, got into the brand management there, worked on some really amazing, fun brands like Old Spice and Gillette and some of the beauty brands. And then for the last four years, I was out in out in the Bay Area. So I moved into tech, worked in fintech for the for the past four years. I was at Intuit for a couple of years, working on kind of global brand marketing campaigns for the Intuit brand itself. And then I moved to SoFi, where I was the head of product marketing for one of SoFi's core products, the, the money product, uh, which is sort of a checking and savings account in one. So have kind of been all over the place, have done some entrepreneurial work, have worked at, in CPG, have done fintech, and now I'm so excited to move, have moved back to Cincinnati to start a wine company. Did you always know that you were going to be an entrepreneur? Like when you were at Walnut Hills, <laughs> growing <laughs> one up, day. I, one day I'm going to be an entrepreneur and own my own business. You know, I, I think I've always had a little bit of that independent streak in me. It's funny. You, I hear interviews from, from entrepreneurs sometimes who are like, I was, you know, I was selling this and that when I was five years old. And my parents always knew I was going to be entrepreneurs. And I'm not sure that I was exactly that. I think it took me some time to figure out what it was that I wanted to do. But, you know, almost immediately once I got into the professional world, I realized that I had this passion for the both the the risk but also the fun that comes with starting your own thing and 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 having your own you know kind of piecing together and building and i'm driven by building things not by some of the other you know not by money or fame or whatever i'm I'm driven by kind of building things and growing them and entrepreneurship just sort of fits that well but then i spent 10 years in the corporate world and so and i wouldn't change that time for anything i learned a lot uh, i met some great people and i think it felt like the right time to leave that and go back into the entrepreneurial space but uh you know i think that there's great you can do you can have a great career doing doing either of them so talk about what it was like entering into the world of wine right because i imagine it's a very complex space to get your start in and to launch anything because there are so many different steps involved yes it is a wildly complicated supply chain <laughs> wildly complicated compliance regulations every state has a different regulation you know i don't i don't have a wine background right and so i've been learning it as fast as i can and calling as many people as i can find it's it's funny the wine world is a very small world. I find that almost everybody I talk to knows the person I talked to yesterday in one form or another, either directly or indirectly. And people are just willing to help. I found people so willing to help me get off the ground and share their experiences, share their knowledge. They're just excited about new ideas, new innovation, new new things going on in wine. And so you know, we're hacking through it. We're figuring it out. That's part of the early stage startup world. But we're, you know, we're piecing together the supply chain. We've got some good kind of advisors and, compli- and uh, consultants and compliance teams that are helping us piece it all together. So we're going. So now can you dive into the story about why wine? Why wine versus, you know, tequila or and mm-hmm. <laughs> was that just because of, you know, li- you living in the Bay Area and being around, you know, some of the best wineries in the world? I mean, I, I'm a wine drinker. I'm certainly not a, I'm not a sommelier. I'm not a winemaker and I'm not a wine connoisseur. And, and, you know, I'm pretty transparent about that. You're the, on, you're the on norm website. on that one then. <laughs> right. I'm the norm. Yeah. 
but I'm sort of not the norm for someone starting a wine company, right? A lot of the people starting wine companies are winemakers. And this inspiration came as a consumer of wine. Like I, I love really good wine. Every once in a while, we'd buy boxed wine, and it was always just okay, right? Some of it is good old Franzia. Well, yeah, some of it, some of it, I would argue, is undrinkable. Uh, <laughs> some of it is okay. I mean, there's some decent boxed wines out there, but none of it was great. I always assumed that there was this technical reason why you couldn't put really good wine into a box. And then I looked around and like they're doing it in France and they're doing it in Australia and the benefits of boxes are amazing, right? Like you, the costs are way lower, the shipping costs are way lower, the environmental impact is significantly better versus bottles. And then you open it and it stays fresh for up to six weeks. So like there's all these benefits, right? It's sort of the idea just sort of grew. It wasn't like I am going to go figure out a wine company to start. It was like, yeah. there's this idea. I love this product. There's all these benefits of boxes and there's this one glaring, like gigantic hole, which is like the quality isn't good. And so people aren't going to buy it. I mean, yes, there are some huge wine brands. Do you think people have that stigma? Like, are you trying to break that stigma that boxed wine is mediocre? Yeah, it's mediocre. Because I think you're saying it yourself. But it's like when you think boxed wine, most people aren't thinking that it's really yeah. good. <laughs> I think I think it's our number one barrier. It's it's mm. it's it's our far and away our number one consumer barrier is that there's just a perception that boxed wine is not good. So how do you break that barrier? What does that look like? Yeah, so I think there's a there's a few things. I mean, for one, the product has to be good, right? Like it yeah. starts at, it starts at the product. If you if you're claiming that something is great and then someone tries it and it's not, you're going to lose people. You might get trial, but you're not going to get kind of persistence. Yeah. You're not going to you're not going to grow. But, you know, that's part of the reason why I named it Really Good Box Wine. I mean, the second you see it, you may not believe it yet, but the second you see it, you know what we're trying to do, right? You know that we're trying to say, hey, think differently about, about box wine. This box is different. You may be used to mediocre box wine, but this is this is really good. Now let, us now let us tell you more about why, right? And then you start to talk to people about, well, you know, this is the, it's actually vintage box wine, which a lot of box wine, you don't know the year it came from. It's actually Appalachian driven. So our box wine comes from the Russian River Valley. A lot of box wines are California red or just red. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't even know where it came from. And so, you know, you start to, you start to really showcase the, uh, tell the story of the winemakers we're, par we're partnering with this amazing 10 acre sustainably farm vineyard in the Russian River Valley for this first box of wine. This, it's a woman-owned and women-operated vineyard. They've been making this incredible Pinot Noir for the last twenty years. But they're a small, they're a small winery. But you know, that's the kind of winery that you only go to if you're able to travel to Sonoma County. And a lot of people can't do that for one reason, for any number of reasons. And so we want to bring them great wine that they normally would only get in that in that way. So while you were speaking, I heard a lot of marketing, just like your marketing background coming, <laughs> it, coming it through. Do you think your previous experiences from the time of Teach for America to fin, you know, Procter & Gamble to FinTech, and do you think that sets you apart from other, you know, wine companies? You know, I, I like to think so. I, I hope so. Um, I think, you know, at, at the core of what you learn in marketing and, and in these sort of classically trained marketing is the consumer sits at the center, right? Like where are the consumer, what are, what's the problem that exists? How do you create a solution? How do you create a value? How do you actually create uh, the product that solves that problem? How do you tell the story about how your product solves that problem that this group of consumers has? And then how do you actually put that in front of them? And so the, the sort of process of creating a marketing strategy 
whether it's deodorant from Old Spice, a checking account from SoFi, or a platform like Intuit. Sure, there are nuances, of course, but there's a lot of similarities in how you create the create the strategy. And then, you know, and then being in digital marketing for the past the past four or five years in the fintech space, I think having a sense of what kind of data do you, you know, how do you leverage the data that you have? And of course, keep being careful around consumer safety and brand safety and, and on privacy and all of that, but really understanding how do you bring the right message to the right people at the right time who are looking for this product, who are looking for something like this. This is kind of a two-part question here. Who are the people that are buying boxed wine compared to those who are buying the average bottle? And then when you find those people, when you've realized who these people are, you, you were just talking about strategy. What was your marketing strategy to get this out there? How were, how are people finding you? The reality is, is there are a lot more people out there buying boxed wine that you might think. The three, the three biggest boxed wine brands are over a billion dollars in sales. Like these are massive, massive, massive brands. And so between Francia, Boda Box, and Black Box. And so there's a there are a lot of people who are buying boxed wine and, and really like boxed wine. So there's no necessarily like specific audience of like groups of people who are having parties or something like that. It's kind of everybody. Yeah, I think there's yeah. sort of there's sort of the demographics are sort of two part. One is people who want to have a glass or two of wine, but not drink a whole bottle, right? People who, because once you open the bottle, it goes bad in like 24 hours and to 48 hours. And so you've got to drink, you've got to over drink or you feel guilty about throwing it away, right? (laughs) And so box wine solves that problem. So a lot of people are using it kind of as their house wine, I would say like a Tuesday night, instead of opening a good bottle on Friday night, when they have a couple friends over and want to have a couple more drinks, they'll just tap, you know, they'll have a glass of wine after work on a Tuesday to kind of relax. That's right. Who doesn't want just a glass of wine? It seems very convenient. Okay, so that was, sure. that was the first part. <laughs> so, so, that, so that's part of it. And then the other one is parties, right? People who, you know, if you're going to buy wine, it's it's a lot more cost effective to buy it in box format because right now the boxes are 20 to 25 bucks for four bottles of wine. It's, it's not the highest quality wine in the world right now. We're looking to change that, but it's still more cost effective than buying four bottles of wine, especially pretty decent wine. So those are kind of the two core use cases that people are often buying boxed wine for. So then how are you launching now for that part two? What was that strategy to get your brand awareness out? Because you're still very new and fresh to the scene, but it seems like you are already tapped for your first round of orders, correct? Yeah. So we launched a sort of a controlled campaign in the Cincinnati, Ohio area. We're available only to ship to Ohio right now, but we launched in Cincinnati only. And and the goal was to just, you know, to get an understanding and learning of who are the people who are buying, what are their, what are they using it for? What are those demographics? I mean, a lot of this is, is learning, right? And so you, you get, we built a waiting list over the last couple of months. We we kind of kept them kept kept the waiting list apprised of the of the process of filling the boxes and when we were going to launch and all of that. And then you know once once we had we were ready for launch, we sort of opened the waiting list up for orders. A lot of this is learning who is buying, and I'm a big I'm a big proponent of like behavioral uh, is is better than demographic. I mean, you can make any assumption in the world about who your consumer oh, is, and yeah. and the design target is great. Like, there's a certain group of people that you're designing the product for and designing the value proposition. That's part of your strategy, but ultimately, the behaviors that people take are the most important thing. Who is actually buying the product and why? Did you learn that? Who 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 is like? And does that go back to your previous answer? 
Yeah, I, th- I think it. Uh, I I think we learned. I'm still digging into the data, so we're five days for five days into launch. So it's a it's a very relevant question, something that I'm thinking about. I think one of the things that we learned, which is not surprising, is that a lot of the people who bought who we didn't personally know came from recommendations from other people. And wine wine is such a sort of luxury good, especially a higher end wine is such a luxury good. People want to you know people want to hear either from their social circle or some, or an expert that this, that this product is great. It's not like, you know, buying a stick of deodorant where people aren't really sharing it. Like this is very much a shareable, fun, fun product. And so, you know, I think one of the things that we'll lean into more of when we get to our national launch is finding ways to introduce people to the wine through their own, through their own network. So how do you tap into people who have already tried the product, give them, give them incentives to share it with their networks and sort of kind of grow organically through word of mouth, which might be different for, for other types of products out there. But wine very much feels like it grew it grew that way. So do you focus then, which makes sense, right? I'm, I'm kind of, I have a couple different thoughts in my head right now. I think number one, especially with any sort of wine, food, liquor, whatever it might be, I agree the best thing that you could do is get that product in front of that person to taste test it because it is a shareable product. But what were you doing on the on the social media side of things? Were you able to gain a lot of traction there? We were. There's some sort of super tactical things like yeah. how are you curating the hashtags on your posts so that you're getting exposure yeah. to people who might be looking at those hashtags. And there's some strategies around, yeah. you know, picking, you can tag up to 30 hashtags. And so you pick ones that have, you know, you pick 10 that have 30 to 80,000 mentions on hashtag. Mm-hmm. You pick a, hashtags, you pick a cut, you pick a few that are in the hundred to 500,000, then you pick some really popular. I mean, there's some like really tactical strategies to how you grow a social media audience. Cause like how, how be honest on that. How influential has the social media push been for you guys as a brand? I think the most, the most powerful thing far and away was the wait list for driving growth. But a lot of, we grew the wait lists, a lot of the wait list yep. through social media. I mean, okay, there's so it had a big impact then. So it had a big impact. I would say, you know, we didn't, we haven't done much kind of, we, we, I had a few kind of small dollar, just very, very small test paid media spends, but I wouldn't say that we'll, we'll learn some stuff from it. It's not, re- it's not representative of what this will actually look like, but that the organic social side absolutely drove, drove sales, whether it came from the waiting, driving into the waiting list that they weren't able to reach out to them through our own kind of email communications or directly as we're posting. So can you give us some numbers like on your traction to date? I know you're only five days in, but yeah. a wait list, getting that data is so valuable for it is. a company starting out and then obviously converting that into sales only after five days is pretty impressive. So can you, can you uh, share with our listeners some numbers here? Uh, I, I'm not going to share exact numbers, but you know, we, we were able to sell several hundred, several hundred units and I would say 60, probably 60 to 70% of them came through, came through the wait list. And, exactly. and so, you know, and so the build, but building that wait list was three months of work leading mm-hmm. up to the launch to get people to get, to get to that, to get to the numbers that we saw on the wait list. And some of the wait lists are people who don't live in Cincinnati and can't buy the wine right now. And so they're still kind of on the wait list, right? They're still, they're still waiting for their opportunity to buy. Let's talk about that though, the distribution side of it. I don't think people realize how complicated distributing alcohol can be because every state is different. In Ohio, we are state run. So how does that impact 
your business right now? And what does the distribution process look like? There's sort of two ways. There's the traditional way to sell alcohol in the United States. And then there's what's a quickly growing category, the direct-to-consumer space. And so I'll start with the kind of traditional one. The traditional model is called the three-tier system. The producer sells to a wholesaler who sells to a retailer who sells to you as the consumer. And so those, those are the three tiers. And each in each step in that process, obviously, is a middleman where you see a step up. In some of some states have required percentage step ups. And so it's it's not even really at the discretion of of the wholesalers or the retailers. It's just sort of a required markup that that each kind of step in the process takes. That's the best way to get into liquor stores and wine bars and grocery stores or wherever, right? They're kind of traditional, your kind of traditional sales channels. The challenge with that from a producer standpoint, well, there's a number of challenges with that. One is all of those markups mean your when you're making a bottle of wine that is that you know that you're selling for ten dollars, it ends up at twenty to twenty-five dollars on the shelf. And so yeah. you've and so the ability to invest in the quality of the wine is hard because so much of the so much of the cost is being eaten up by the middlemen. And so you want to deliver, and that's why you see wines that are fifty, seventy, a hundred, hundred and thirty dollars because you know, the wine in there is a pretty high quality product. And after you see it stepped up so many times, that's what it ends up at the shelf. The other path is direct to consumer. And this is a rapidly growing space. There's different, there are different licenses required in every single state compared to the three, compared to the license to sell to a distributor. And so in theory, if you're selling both in all 50 states, you could have up to a hundred different licenses um, across the country, but that enables you to sell directly across state lines from your winery as a wine producer directly to the doorstep of your consumers. And it sort of cuts out the cuts out the middleman process. And that comes with lots of complexity as well and, and some pros and cons. The the pro is, you know, I can invest more in the quality of my wine because when you're paying $60 for our box, it's probably about the same as what you would pay 100, 120 to $130 on the shelf for that same quality of wine. And so it lets us invest more in that. The challenge is you won't find us, is, assuming we stay direct to consumer only, you likely won't find us in grocery stores or liquor stores or potential, or probably even bars and restaurants because you know we're legally not allowed to sell through those channels. We have to only sell direct to consumer. So I guess this brings up a good question then. How do you plan on scaling if you're going the direct yeah, to consumer? Yeah, you know, I think of, and this is where like the 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 marketing side comes in versus the wine side of me. Like I think of this as an e-commerce brand that sells wine rather than a winery that's selling, you know, that's selling online. That has nothing to do with the quality of the product. The product is still amazing and will contain that's a huge focus is continuing to keep the quality high, but it's more in kind of the go-to-market strategy and how are you what how are you piecing together the supply chain? How are you putting your marketing campaigns in place so that you're driving through digital channels, you're driving through lifecycle marketing, you get somebody in, how do you continue to kind of tell them the story of the wine, bring them new varietals, bring them new offerings to try and get them to um, to kind of continue to buy into the brand and, and purchase more wine. We're we're planning on 
launch. We have we don't have it yet, but we're planning on launching a subscription service that'll give people you know discounts on every box that they buy, access to limited edition, limited releases. We may do some 500 boxes with a celebrity winemaker from a celebrity winery or something it's like trendy that. Trendy these right? days, <laughs> that kind, yeah, that kind of stuff, and it'll only be available for people who are in who are who are subscribers of of mm-hmm. a monthly or quarterly delivery. And so you know, it's it's a lot of kind of e-commerce strategy as opposed to wine mm-hmm. selling strategy and of course the complexity of wine and all the compliance and and everything that comes with it you have to figure that stuff out on the back end but in the end you know it's an it's an e-commerce brand and so social media pay, you know paid media is a huge piece of this i think but i do think boots to the earlier point i think being boots on the ground talking to people like having people taste the wine having them share with their friends, giving them rewards and incentives to share with their friends is a huge way that we're going to grow as well. And have you been receiving feedback too? Was was this wine that you have in this box kind of your first go around, your first test, or were, were you going through kind of focus groups to see what, what stuck? This this is the first this is the first one that's out there. Wow, I mean we, we awesome. had we had focus groups on packaging positioning you know i had the i had the the prototypes that are sitting in the closet behind me right now yeah. uh, we we broke out the prototypes and talked to consumers about what they think about it and and learned from it we made some pivots and adjustments based on some early a lot of pivots and adjustments actually are based on some early consumer feedback on design and packaging and all of that but this is the first go round i mean we we filled it we filled it. We we tried it to make sure it was the quality that we wanted it to be, and then we uh, we pushed live. Do you think you're going to see? Uh, I'm kind of backtracking. I think this e-commerce conversation is really interesting. Now that you're in this world of wine and and in the alcohol biz, so to speak, do you think more brands are going to be shifting to this? I think so. E-commerce is up for wine is up almost 300 percent year over year. It's just a trend that's going. What do you think that says then about that the other option, the distribution option of of our of how we you know legalized everything in every state and how it's all different? Do you think that our states need to be more on the same page, or do you think it's just going to stay the way it is? I, it would certainly make it easier for for wine producers yeah. if they're on the same page. I, I don't anticipate it happening. Um, yeah. There there are you know there's there are 44 states in the country that allow a wine producer to sell directly to their consumer across state lines. So there are six states that that don't, and they're not the biggest markets, right? They're, but there are six states that, that still don't allow it, but there are 44 that do, but they require a certain license. And some of the licenses are as simple as you fill out a form, you submit it to the local ABC and pay $25 a yearly fee and you're in and you're fine. Some yeah. of them, some of them are much more complicated. You have, you know, you have, tax requirements, you have, you have file, filing requirements and, and everything. And so it, it's, it's complicated. I wish that it would get simpler. I think every winery in the, in, in the country probably wishes that it would get simpler, but this is the, the industry that we live in. <laughs> so I want to kind of dive into the team. Like, is this all on you right now? Or do you have like an e-commerce guru helping you navigate these waters? Do you have a legal, like, a legal, you know, counsel on team to help you navigate all the, like the legal processes. So, yeah. tell us a little bit about the team. So, formally, as an employee, it's just me, and we are a C corp, and so I'm an employee of Really Good Box Wine Inc. We just closed a raise a few weeks ago of, of a few of a three hundred thousand dollar raise, and so 
I was fortunate enough to have more interest than I was asking for. And so I was able to kind of strategically, you know, strategically look at the investors that were interested and put together a strategic initial strategic investment board. So I have a lawyer on, I've got some e-commerce gurus on, um, on the investor team and they're, they're helpful advisors. And then, you know, I've got, I've got kind of freelancers that I'm working with. I hired, I hired a firm to help build the, the Shopify store. I hired a designer and copywriter to do the, to do the packaging design. You know, work, I'm working with freelancers and contractors right now. You know, the goal would be as we continue to grow and we're able to hire, I think bringing the right talent in as all is as a true kind of hire and giving them a equity stake in the company and having them kind of fully bought in is absolutely a goal. We're just not quite there yet. What has been the biggest surprise and obstacle that you've run into during this experience? I think the, it, it's the obvious one, which is like alcohol is complicated. And yeah. every time you turn a corner, there's another challenge or, or compliant, you know, regulation or, uh, or just challenge in the supply chain. I mean, the, I'll give you some examples, like aside from just compliance, you know, wine is really hard to ship outside of a pretty narrow temperature band because if it's too hot, the wine cooks and it gets destroyed. And so, okay, mm-hmm. so how do you transport wine when it can't sit in a hot truck? So you got to go figure out how to get a refrigerated truck to go, to go ship That's the wine. That's more cost too. Yeah. more cost, right? Or, or in the summer months, if it's one off, you may fill it with gel packs and ice packs, which is obviously more cost, but also helps keep the wine. So those are the things that we've had to figure out some of the early things, but as we get into a more sophisticated supply chain, those will become even more important because now we're shipping all over the country and we don't have control over it. Right now it's controlled in Ohio and mostly Cincinnati. So it's a little bit easier to control, but um, when you get to national distribution, it it gets much more complicated. So it's everywhere. There's complexity everywhere in alcohol. Did you run into problems when you were raising your investment round with, you being an alcohol brand. I know a lot of, you know, VC firms with, who have even been on our podcasts have something called a vice clause, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, to our listeners, if you want to go listen to uh, our parent pods episode on vice clauses, they have a whole episode yeah. about that. So definitely hop on over there. But a lot of them do have these vice clauses that say they can't invest in, you know, alcohol companies or, you know, gambling companies, etc. Did you run into that when you were raising <laughs> your round? So we haven't so far. All of the raise came from private individuals, whether it's sort of a friends and family round or kind of angel investors who who I personally know that aren't investing through an angel network, but are are involved in, you know, are interested in in, in this business. And so we haven't run into it yet. I certainly anticipate seeing mm-hmm. some as we grow, as we continue to look to raise bigger rounds to fight, to run into some VC firms and angel groups that have those vice clauses, but we haven't run into it yet, fortunately. So what advice then could you give someone who might be looking to get into this complicated business and this complicated industry? It's interesting because I'm getting into it from the outside as well. And so yeah. I think it's a good it's a good question. I think I went into it eyes wide. I was warned that this is a very complicated industry. And I went into it eyes wide open, knowing that there were going to be mountains of problems to solve. And I think, you know, the nature of running of business and of entrepreneurship is solving problems. There always mm-hmm. are problems. And, and that is almost the definition of business is solving yeah. problems. <laughs> They're just are more in a heavily regulated industry. And, you know, I came from FinTech, which is heavy regulated by FINRA. So we had, we had heavy, heavy compliance work that we had to do when I was at SoFi. And then to 
a slightly lesser extent of the, the work that I personally did, but also heavily regulated is antiperspirants and deodorants at P&G. So you have a, yeah. it's regulated by the FDA. It's, it's, and so I've come from regulated industries. I know that it adds complexity, but it also creates a moat, right? If I can figure it out, it makes it harder for others to, to break into it, which gives, gives you a benefit. You just got to work through it. You got to figure it out. From a more broader approach, what have you learned about starting your own business that you wish to share with, you know, just anyone wanting to start their own business, maybe not in the wine industry? I think it's, you've got to be willing to do the, like, the the grunt work. I mean, when you get into the corporate world, you have teams who are willing, you know, you have teams that do everything, right? You're not opening POs, you're, you're mess, you're slacking your finance person to open a PO, you're the, you know, the assistant to open the PO, you're not doing, you're not writing the press releases, you're mm-hmm. emailing your agency that you're paying a couple million dollars a year to go do it. And, you know, you're bat, you're doing, especially early on, you're doing everything. I mean, you're, yeah. you know, if you open a physical a location, like skills. it is, and you know, you're doing everything from, talking to investors about raising money all the way through, like if you have a restaurant, let's say like cleaning the toilets, right? Like you literally are going to do everything and you've got to love it. And you've not every single thing that you do is glamorous, but it's part of the process of building something because, because you don't have all those resources that you're at your disposal. And if that's what you want to do, like go for it. And if, if you don't like that work, it's, I think it's worth taking a step back and saying, is this, do I like the idea of being an entrepreneur or do I actually like being an entrepreneur? Cause I think that those are two very different things. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. And we're definitely going to end on that note. Jake, <laughs> this is great. Thank you. I, I'm excited to try this wine at some point in time. You Absolutely. just let us know when you need more guinea pigs. To my house. <laughs> That's right. Sometime today. I'm inviting so, myself. <laughs> Ali, Ali's coming over now. <laughs> I'm so excited to hear what you think about it. I appreciate you having me on. This was a lot of fun. Heck yeah. Okay, so we are recording this and it's not even noon and this whole conversation has made me want a glass of wine. We should have grabbed a glass before we started this whole conversation. (gasps) (laughs) But I'm really excited to see another e-commerce company. Yes, that's the big heavy hitter right there. Yes, not a wine company, an e-commerce company, which I liked how he differentiated the two because I think that's going to make them stand out in the long run to their wine competitors. Yeah. And I think most people, and I imagine any, most wine drinkers or anyone who's purchasing alcohol in general probably doesn't think e-commerce when they think wine. So it's a smart, it's a smart strategy to go down and to execute. And I think you're just going to keep seeing more and more brands uh, continue with e-commerce online, especially for alcohol, because it is so complicated depending on what state you're in to distribute. Yeah, because of our antiquated <laughs> prohibition yeah. era alcohol laws. And it would be interesting to see this industry move towards that e-commerce play. I could just order it for a party with some friends. And then, hey, we might not drink you know, the full box of wine, which is four bottles of wine, which is... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the rest of the box will still be good six weeks from now, which... Makes me excited as a, as a wine drinker that I'm not being wasteful. And I yeah. also really liked how thoughtful they were in building their e-commerce play by building up their wait list and then launching, you know, just this week, basically, in Ohio. They still have people on that wait list across the country wanting their box of really good mm-hmm. box wine. 
Yeah, and and that's what it seems like he was kind of getting at too with behavior, right? He there are some major factors for this the really good box wine. He was talking about cool, it can last up to six weeks. You know, it's fifty percent lower carbon foot print versus bottled wine, you know, lower cost, da, 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 da. And I thought it was interesting that he was saying that it's the six-week element that really is the kicker and the top uh, is what people are, it's, it's, that's what people are looking for. That's what people want. And yeah, and the behavior. And then they keep on pushing their e-commerce play through social media like Instagram. So if you want to stay up to date on what they're doing, go follow them on Instagram at really good boxed wine, all one, all one word. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, shameless plug here, make sure you follow when pigs fly on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook uh, for the latest episodes. And if you really, really like us, make sure you subscribe, download, Yeah. And tell a friend, tell a friend, if you like this podcast, tell a friend to listen and tune in because word of mouth is the best way to get our name out there. And we appreciate you. We love hearing from you all. So please reach out. And with that, Allie, I think it's time to cheers to boxed wine. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. And here's some necessary legal stuff. Allie Martin and Patrick Bailey developed the When Pigs Fly podcast in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, we do not own equity or other financial interest in the companies which appear on this show unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of the EW Scripts Company and its affiliates or Generator Management LLC and its affiliates or any entity which employ us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. We have not considered your specific financial situation nor provided any investment or legal advice on this show. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. We also want to give a shout out to Claire and Christian of Moonbow. They're the two artists of our intro song, which is so catchy and gets stuck in our heads all the time. So bop over to Spotify or wherever you find your music and give them a listen. And Like the Night by Moonbow is courtesy of Silver Lake Sync. <laughs>